y'all. Welcome back to my woods. Blessed is this month as one for love and learning as myself as well as the creatures of the night. It is for both the celebration of Valentine's Day and Black History. So hooray. Um, I am, I'm just going to dig right in because I'm really excited. We've, we're bringing back one of our past guests today. Past guest and friend of the pod. Uh, Leah Johns is back. Hi, Leah. Hi. I'm so happy that we didn't frighten you off. <laughs> Never. You can't. Oh, what joy. Oh, my goodness, my goodness. Well, again, I know it's quite a trek to come around the fire here in these winter months, uh, or as it has been in Los Angeles, uh, for you, very soggy. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, be glad uh, I didn't float away. Yes, we are very, very glad for that. Or if you had, that maybe you would have floated down my way. So some of you might recall, Leah was actually our very first folksy guest. As a heritage food blogger, she came on to discuss the menu. Since then, you have actually admitted something to me that I am just absolutely tickled by, uh, which is that you may now be finding that folk horror is one of your favorite subgenres. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I admit it. I admit it. I you make it sound like I was twisting your arm to say this. Well, no, like you're not twisting <laughs> my arm to say that. It's just like it's kind of hard to admit because, like, you know, like, uh, I'm a Southern Gothic girl, and you are a Southern Gothic girl. You love a slasher for sure. Yeah, so, bitch, which we say with respect and love. Yeah, so, <laughs> so so saying that, like, yeah, no, like, folk has a place in my whole heart now. Like, yeah, no, you got you got me there. You got me there. You know, it's very interesting. I've been finding recently that a lot of country music has been rebranding itself as folk music because a lot of people have this opinion that, oh, you know, I like all music except country because they're thinking of stadium country, which is very new Mm. um, comparatively. And so a lot of people are calling it, you know, folk music, bluegrass music, you know, anything else (laughs) to kind of take that bumpkin notion away from it but i like my bumpkin i don't know (laughs) (laughs) i think the bumpkin is fun and as a as a fan of southern gothic these two go hand in hand yeah they really do and i think that's why that's why i'm enjoying them more and more well i am so so very very glad and i guess that actually brings us to one of my favorite parts early um but will you give a sacrifice to my fire i will what was the film that made you realize that this might be your favorite subgenre? Oh gosh. Okay. Um, I actually texted you while I was watching it. Oh yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and I was like, Oh my gosh, what is this perfect combination of Southern Gothic and folk? Is this folk? I need you to watch it and tell me if it's folk. Cause I think it's folk and I think I love it. Um, yes. it's called was- Oracle. Yes, this was Oracle. Okay, cool. Yeah, I remember you texting me about this and saying, is this folk? And I think I got 10 minutes in and I said, yep, they did the big folk revival thing that everybody does now where we're driving down a road and then the camera flips upside down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know why that is a staple of uh, folk horror revival now, but it is. It's a thing um, now. It's kind of like rabbits in the sense of like, when they show up, you're like, that's folk horror. But like, until then, you're kind of like, ah, I could, you know, I, either or if you miss the rabbits, then, you know, nah. uh, but but this is kind of, to, at least to me, this is the new bunny rabbits is the is the camera flip uh, to let us know that things are about to get sinister and strange, even though they look totally normal for now. Nope. You've fallen down the hole. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what Oracle is about? Um. Uh, so Oracle is about this woman who um, is like desperately looking for a new job and she works in childcare and she gets this offer from a white woman. Heather Graham. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Heather Graham. Yes. No, that, no, that's a big one because like that's, that's, I saw her name on the movie. I was like, Ooh, Heather Graham in horror. Sure. Let's get right. this. Let's give this a go. I have no idea what, what else this is, what I'm walking into. But um, so she accepts this interview from this very pushy white woman who really wants her to come out to her house to look after her kids and is very uh, not forthcoming with uh, the fact that it's a plantation house. And what a plantation it is. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a very, very, 
and they and things start happening from the very beginning and it, it oh it just it's such a wild wide i don't want like i'm so excited about this film like i know i'm gonna give something away so no I, that's trying totally, not to <laughs> give something. no i i understand completely i mean it's on my list now of films to talk about on this podcast for a oh, very oh yeah i mean when we look at folk horror and actually this will be really great kind of as we start to dive into what we're talking about today which will not be a secret at this point in time we're talking about the 2021 uh, Candyman, uh, you know, what is interesting about a lot of folk horror and a lot of folklore is where do we put down the, the fence posts between like, this is a haunted house story. This is a ghost story. This is a vampire story. You know, where, where do those kind of like live in how we talk about folklore? Because oftentimes, you know, these kind of like creatures or certain places are, haunting and so mm -hmm. i think oracle does a really good job of taking it beyond the house and showing you this haunted community um very similar to a way that we are about to look at with uh nia DaCosta's Candyman. real quick for those of you who have not seen nia DaCosta's Candyman, looking for inspiration visual artist anthony mccoy becomes intrigued by the chicago housing project of cabrini green and its connection to an urban legend from the 70s involving a hook-handed child murderer. As pressure of his personal expectations begin to mount, he finds himself falling deeper and deeper into the Candyman's lore, discovering that the legend's sinister history is woven not only into the history of Cabrini, but into his own destiny as well. It stars Yahya Abdul-Martin II, Tenoya Paris, Nathan Stewart Jarrett, Coleman Domingo, which whoop whoop, he just got nominated for an Oscar and uh, has special guest appearances by Vanessa Williams and Tony Todd, because you have to. Um, if you have not seen Nia DaCosta's Candyman from 2021, take a moment to turn away from the fire and go fucking watch that movie. Like now, just do it. <laughs> I'm going to get more belligerent with some of these as we go on. Um, but if you are ready to head back to Cabrini Green, uh, let the sound of buzzing bees lull you ever closer to the plane, my friends. Uh, yeah, so let's dig in. Yeah, let's do it. Excellent. Uh, so as a tradition, a little history of Candyman, which I suppose makes me the Helen Lyle of this situation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so oopsie doozle, but here we go. In 1984, author, playwright, filmmaker, and queer icon Clive Barker released the first three volumes of his short story anthology, The Books of Blood. The anthology is framed by its first tale about a fake psychic who is attacked by the supernatural and becomes a quote-unquote book of blood as the entities carve stories into his flesh. Barker himself used the tagline for the series, everybody is a book of blood. Whenever we're open, we're read, R-E-D, which is kind of fun. The series of short stories would become the backbone of Barker's establishment as one of the great horror writers of the 1980s if not, honestly, of all time. If you're a horror fan, you've probably, you, you recognize Barker's name as being, you know, the original director and screenwriter for Hellraiser, which is actually based off of his novel, The Hellbound Heart. The Books of Blood have inspired tons of films that are deeply injected with Barker's personal flair of the gothic supernatural, including The Midnight Meat Train, Lord of Illusions, Nightbreed, and probably the most famous to come out of these six volumes, Candyman, based on his story, The Forbidden. The Forbidden itself is the telling of a monster from an urban legend come to life and how a downtrodden community protects their own. It is both similar in tone and its folkloric elements to what would become Candyman, but diverges in story due to it being about a white monster in Liverpool. Um, it has a very British take on cul-de-sac folk horror, separating the haves and the have-nots, and it introduces a lot of lines that would later become associated with the franchise, such as Sweets to the Sweet, which is very British, uh, and one of my favorite lines in the franchise, Be My Victim. Uh, but from this story, cinema really invented a legend of its own. Uh, we'll do a separate episode on Bernard Rose's Candyman, but basically it gets the ball rolling that the point of intrigue for all those who dare to look behind the graffiti there is an urban folklore that goes all the way back to the 18 and 1900s. 
and the scars and the sins of the past are still as fresh as ever. Now, why am I talking about all these weirdos during Black History Month, you may ask, and that's a legitimate question. Um, the reason why is that it was super important to me to start with Nia DaCosta's Candyman because this story has become a tentpole in Black horror. And yet it was not until now that the story itself wasn't written by a white person. I think a lot of people think that Bernard Rose is black because he came out during a time when we weren't Googling people on the internet. And in fact, he is a white person. His other big films of note include things like My Immortal Beloved, which is a Beethoven film starring Gary Oldman and yet another Anna Karenina. And so it's like these and Candyman are like his kind of big staples of, of directing. And so here comes DaCosta's film, which is the first time that this story, which has become such an important part of Black filmmaking, is actually being told by Black people. You know, telling a story over and over can make it better if you're listening and observing the narrator's unique perspective. This is especially true of horror because all that subjectivity that I talk about all the time is as expansive as it is personal. You know, uh, the story of Candyman and his legacy is personal, it's horrific, it's relevant, and it's something that we all need to see through the prismatic perspective of this film. If Bernard Rose's Candyman was about the man and the myth, Nia DaCosta's is about the legend. And with all that nonsense, let's talk about Candyman. <laughs> let's talk about Candyman! Let's talk about it. Well, this film like lingered on the tip of folk horror revival history uh, because it was actually pushed three times due to the pandemic. Do you remember mm -hmm. that? Yeah, I remember that. Oh my goodness. I remember yeah. that. Oh my God. I was so mad. I remember <laughs> we texted a lot about it during that time. <laughs> you know, it's, it's wild because like this film in many ways would become this nexus point of what would become this age of modern folk horror revival because while it was postponed, two things happened. Uh, one, as a result of this, we got to see these trailers like crazy. Like the Candyman trailer, I think is the only trailer I remember coming out of the pandemic. I don't know about you. There were other trailers? My point exactly. They were so striking in their visuals because it was this these paper dolls that they were using to tell stories that weren't just the original Candyman cinematic story. It was different stories that we were seeing. Um, and of course, on May 25th, 2020, during the pandemic, George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis during an act of police brutality. And so suddenly, as this film was being postponed, it became more relevant than ever, um, kind of on, on, the, uh, on the back of what we were coming out with, with um, what we were learning during this time. Um, no, and I'm not really in a teachable moment right now. So like, I think everybody can do their own research if they don't know what happened in 2020 and with the BLM movement and everything else and what's still going on. Um, and if you don't know about it, then where have you been? So Bitch, I'm really glad that that is what you said on air. <laughs> You know, because because we are in, in now 2024 and this this film you know, I bring this up for the the notion that this film came out at this very interesting nexus because, you know, when we had these other pieces that were coming out that were being hailed as this kind of elevated horror, when in reality, when you look at a lot of what is considered elevated horror, it's actually folk horror. You know, a lot of these films that were starting to come out, The Witch, Midsummer, Hereditary, you know, uh, Peel was being put up there with Eggers and Aster you know, on, on these pedestals. Um, and I think that that is worth noting, if not just for the fact that then, you know, here comes him producing DaCosta's. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's a very interesting point in cinematic history. Mm -hmm. um, so I talked a little bit about the visual storytelling of the, uh, of this film and through the use of like the trailers, what do, are there like moments of the trailers that you particularly remember? Oh God. I mean, so I just want to start off by saying that as far as horror films go and things that have stuck with me since I was a child, Candyman yeah. is one of my favorites. So like, I mean, it's like one of my all-time favorites. So like the second I heard that this was being made, 
I like I was in like nothing could convince me otherwise that anything bad could happen with this film. Yay! Um, <laughs> yeah, like I mean, you know, we've talked about this. We've talked about my love of Candyman. We've watched Candyman together. Like, yeah, you know my love of the original. I love that film. So, ah, uh, yeah, like. I think it was, it's the shadow puppets that made it really creepy is his use of music always because like whoever does his music for all of his films, like it's just perfection. Um, and it was a tease, it was a tease because like we really didn't know where he was going with the story outside of the fact that it was like carrying it on. No, I love that. I remember the poster and it's so interesting to have gone from, you know, we don't talk about the Candyman because he might come out and get you to say my name. Mm-hmm. Like what a, what a different take on, on one of the big cardinal rules. You know, the Candyman has, has rules, um, yeah. you know, very similar to rules in the sense of like how we see a vampire where it's, you know, how do you kill a vampire? Garlic, steak through the heart cut off its head, you know, the, the candy man, you know, has a hook for a hand. He has that jacket. There's always an association with bees, you know, um, there are just certain things that just, we associate with it. And again, one of them is if you say his name five times, he will appear. And that is a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want him to appear. <laughs> and this film is so interesting in how it took not only its own folkloric notions that would go into the actual story, but just the folklore of the fact that this is folklore born of cinema. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is not like an, a, one yet another serial killer based on Ed Gein. Like, <laughs> you know, this is, this is a completely unique entity kind of coming into its final form with this film, uh, yeah. which is, really really interesting and then uh just as like a little history on the actual shadow puppets because this is kind of fun da costa collaborated with manual cinema a chicago-based design company focused on integrating practical theater elements into film so the puppets are the key focus in passing down the actual story of the Candyman. uh she actually has a really great interview on fandango about the shadow puppets that i have to see if i can find she talks about how they were inspired by the art of Kara Walker, which like, if you have never seen, it is very powerful. <laughs> um, it is some very, very powerful looks at the African experience. She did one really great showing, I want to say in Minneapolis, um, talking about the history of sugar in the Black community. It was very, very cool. Um, but, you know, DaCosta, I guess it was like very important for her to actually include these shadow puppets, which I think is dope. Put more puppets in movies. <laughs> I just like, I'm like, I'm still sitting here thinking about the trailer and going back to the trailer and just getting that mix of getting those shots of Cabrini, right? Yeah. Which takes us back to the original film. Yeah. Mixed in with the shadow puppets, mixed in with like, current like the current characters like we kept getting it kept going back and forth you know yeah and so much of that visual storytelling would like actually be in this movie which i was not expecting yeah so like i was listening to you the whole time you were talking i'm very interested and i do want to see this um exhibit like um exhibit that you're talking about yeah but i kind of got lost in like the trailer again (laughs) i'm not gonna lie (laughs) No, I I like that it's a piece of art in its own right. The trailers, as they were being shown over and over again during this time in American history, it feels like an important part of American history now, you know, in a weird way, because movies can sometimes do that. You know, they just they create these visual impressions and the visual impression that this film makes is right off the bat before we'd even gotten into the theaters. Like they did a really good job of doing, again, my favorite film marketing thing, uh, which is like making it interesting, but you know, so simplistic how little it took to make it interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But that kind of gets us into the actual film because, you know, this film does not fuck around from moment one. We're hearing Sammy Davis Jr. sing the Candyman song while the universal logo floats backwards in front of the globe which is a better way of doing that car shot <laughs> for <laughs> filmmakers listening at home. 
but but I, or I don't know. What do you think when the when movies kind of fuck with the intro like that? I mean, I like it. Like I like to see different ways to do the intro. Honestly, doing the same thing over and over again is boring. So that is fair. Yeah, I remember I remember the Candyman one and I remember the Barbie one. Those are like the two that really stand out to me in more recent days. But uh but yes, so so we get this opening with all of this beautiful like mirrored kind of stuff, you know, we we get the cold open which mm-hmm. is, you know, introducing us to yet another version of the story of yep. Candyman. A young yep. man witnesses the killing of Sherman Fields a homeless man with a hook for a hand by the local police for a crime that he did not commit. Yeah. Yep. And so it's interesting because right off the bat, you know, again, coming, coming from the original, something that you love so much, how, what was it like seeing suddenly a different Candyman? Like you know, we have already changed the lore. We like, like we have been what, 40 years out because it takes place in like the seventies. So we're oh, yeah. 40 years out and he he's not he's not a black man in the 1800s anymore. He is modern day quote unquote modern day man still being persecuted by the white man. Oh yeah, by these local right. cops who are just the scene of of uh of the little boy going and dropping the socks before he gets into the laundry. Yeah. And they can see him dropping these socks and trying to pick them up and eventually he leaves one. I just the fact that no one is like, hey kid, there you you missed yeah, one. Like, like you're just not- it tells you right away what kind of people you're dealing with. Yeah. Like, exactly. Yeah. And it's just it's such an interesting way of kind of opening this up. And then we get these great shots of the upside down skyscrapers going through gentrified Chicago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like in these almost hive-like buildings. Like I did not ever think of Chicago as a beehive, but now I can't. It is no longer Gotham. It is <laughs> it is just beehives around Cabrini Green forever now. Um, but, uh, but, you know, yeah, it's a great kind of like stark way of taking us from gentrified Chicago into the apartment of Anthony and Brianna, mm-hmm. <laughs> where we get... I. I love that a gay man tells the story of the rampage. Oh, I love that so much. And I love that he it's done in that like very traditional around the campfire. I'm going to freak out my sibling kind of way. Oh yeah. That they do it. Oh yeah. Um, because it, it kind of shows you what Candyman has warped into over the years. And my, and not only that, my deep, deep seated love for the fact that the story is not about the Candyman. It is about the rampage of this weird grad student yep. who stole a baby and put it in a bonfire. Yep. Like, <laughs> that Which is, isn't even right. It's not even right. It's not even right. But yeah. That's the telephone game of folklore, baby. <laughs> it's. It's wild because, you know, yeah, it, it also kind of like gives this film this eerie romp back into like the supernatural world of Cabrini Green, which is, of course, in at least in the context of this film, a very real place with very real problems. Yeah. Like, yeah, it creates that mythic gothic sense of story again in this area, um, which, of course, you know, naturally, Anthony is like immediately like, wait, what? Everybody loves a ghost story that like is being told to them by somebody else that they can research. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Case yeah. in point, Stephen King in The Shining. But, <laughs> um, but it's it's really kind of wild. And that, of course, takes him on his journey where he meets William Burke, which this on my watch through of, of Candyman this time, William Burke might actually be one of my favorite characters in the film now. Um, which I would love to hear your thoughts on, uh, because to me, I had never really put the connection before that William Burke as kind of this guy who's giving Anthony this forbidden knowledge about the Candyman. He kind of creates himself this Lord Summers Isle position where he is the reason why Anthony is really getting pulled into this. You know, he has research and, you know, libraries and other little bits and pieces, but the folklore is being fed to him by William Burke. Well, um, I mean, you need 
the the actual like you need somebody to actually pass down the story. So yeah. like, you can do all your research, you can read all the books, whatever, whatever. But like the actual lore of it is somebody who quote unquote was there. Yeah. Or knows somebody who knows somebody that was there. Yeah. Passing oh, down yeah. the story. Because that's what that's what grounds the story in some sort of realism. Absolutely. And even if it's this story. Yeah. You know, again, you know, going back to the poster, the the big thing with Candyman was you don't say his name. And now here's this guy coming out of nowhere being like, no, 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 no. Let me tell you the real deal mm -hmm. about this really upsetting circumstance that also might be supernatural, <laughs> <laughs> depending on how you feel about it. Uh, and of course, and of course, that leads to to Anthony's terrible art piece. Um, Say my name. Great title. <laughs> but uh, I I love all of the gallery scenes. As somebody who really loves visual artistry, as somebody who loves painting, anytime I get to see Anthony's paintings is so great. And to then see his very like haphazardly thrown together yeah. Say My Name piece, it's Anthony is caught in every artist's personal hell of like wanting to portray an important message, but not doing as elegantly as you think you are. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. he was pushed to do it, so it's understandable. True. True. But like, when have you been to an art gallery where the artist stands right next to you and has to explain the whole thing to you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, it doesn't mean that but he's a to be fair. Okay. He was also explaining the entire thing to a room full of white people. Touche. You know, I actually, as somebody who definitely is like in, entrenched in the church of Velvet Buzzsaw and who the minute that you see the art critic, Finley Stevens, who like from the moment you meet her, you're like, I can't wait to see you die. Like, <laughs> I just, I can't. But yeah, like the minute you meet her, it's Velvet Buzzsaw 2.0, bigger, whiter, whinier. Um, and so, so you're right. I, you know, I, it hadn't occurred to me that way. I just saw it as so many different like moving pieces that when you have to read one thing and then go to another thing and then open another thing, it, it I lost, I guess, the the whimsy in the um, interaction, but you're right. That is actually something that I wonder if the story would have drawn me in more in a live action setting. Um, and that is worth me thinking about. Ha ha. Well, it's like if it would have drawn you more in, in a live action setting, if it would have already, if you would have already been connected to some part of it off the get go. Very, very true. No, that's definitely, no, like, you know, that lack of understanding, which I even just now just exhibited <laughs> through a series of catty dumb jokes. Um, well, maybe not catty. I'm not <laughs> but no, it's just like it's it's literally who is it made for and and he wasn't showing his art to who it was made for. I don't know if I would have gotten it, and that is on me. And that is why we see uh, art multiple times, if you were able to, because yeah. that way you can really process it. Exactly. Um, and of course, you know, the gallery gives us this great setup for all of these terrible people, because we've got the gallery owner, we've got his intern, Dom, not girlfriend, <laughs> girlfriend. <laughs> it's very unclear. Uh, we've got Finley Stevens, who sucks. I love how much she sucks. Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> my God. I just, oh man, she reminds me of uh, the blonde lady in the new Saw movie. Like you just want to run a bus over her face. Um, and of course it leads to one of our first big, really kind of cool kills. Now mm -hmm. I remember when you and I both, we, we saw this film separately because of the pandemic. We did. Um, and then I remember like the, you saw it first. Cause the first thing that you told me is the kills are insane. Yeah. And you were not wrong. <laughs> this first kill in the gallery is upsetting. Like, uh, upsetting, but weirdly satisfying. I love that. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. I like it was, mm, we go back to like meeting his agent or manager or whoever, this gallery owner, whoever the hell he is, his girlfriend's boss, like, this douchebag. Oh yeah. Who has no redeeming qualities. 
Like, even, even if you're looking at him outside of, like, interacting with the artist and everything else, like, he's a douchebag. Just, like, watching him interact with his girlfriend, you're just like, oh, God, you're the worst. Oh, right? they put us in a room full of people who we were all so excited to see them die. Like, yeah. it was literally, it felt like picking your lobster. For me, for me, it was Finley Stevens. For you, it seems like it was it was the art gallery owner. Oh, yeah, no, it was, it was him. Like, right away, it was just like, oh, God, I can't wait for you to die. Like, uh, Yes, excellent. Yeah, no, we get to pick our cow, for lack of a better way. Sorry for any vegetarians out there. Um, <laughs> Uh, but but yeah it, it feels very much so like that which I kind of love I can't actually really remember the last time with a folk horror film the idea was that okay we're going to put all of these people into the meat grinder but you're not going to feel bad about any of them being in the meat grinder well and like we didn't get that in the original at no. all no no the original very much so concentrates on the man. And yeah. even up until this point in time, you know, they they do a very good job in this film of really pacing how much we learn about the Candyman, mm -hmm. a faced Candyman, mm -hmm. um, or an unfamiliar faced Candyman um, very, very quickly, which is really, really interesting. And then kind of before we talk more about that, there's like a the art gallery owner is like our first really big like kill and his weird dumb girlfriend. It's great. It's blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, but then we actually get this really like haunting B story to this film when Brianna finds them the next day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she discovers the bodies in the art gallery and it triggers her childhood memories of her artist father committing suicide. Yeah, that was, that was, Oh, that was gut punch. <laughs> that was sad. Yeah. Well, it's a, and I think that I love that you called it a gut punch because up until this point in time, we've been looking at a little bit of vengeance and a little bit of lore. This is, this is a gut punch watching, you know, we had the, the cold open and then here's the next one too, which is that like, apart from the trauma birth from the Candyman legend, we're also introduced to this idea of mental health and the trauma it can inflict when it goes untreated. And that's what I was about to say. It, it's it's um, foreshadowing for sure. My apologies. I did not mean to step on your point. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. No, I'm, I'm jumping off of your point. It, it was definitely foreshadowing. Absolutely. Well, and then we really kind of get that as we see the relationship that gets discussed with her brother. Um, you know, like, it's interesting. Again, it's kind of this B story throughout the film because she does a pretty good job of pretty early on being like, nope, this was weird. I'm getting the fuck out. Um, you know, despite as how black people do, as we do, I I'm sorry, like, even in the original, we we we're not we're not running towards the we're we're never the ones usually running towards Candyman, you know, like, yeah. and you don't need to be sorry about that. Like, That's a good thing. Like, <laughs> we're the ones looking for the door and be like, no, I'm good. Like, I know something's up that I don't want to fuck around with. Like, I'm good. Let's 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 bounce. You know. Yeah. And so, like this this movie does really fit the script on that too. Oh, one hundred percent. Like they. They really, I'm going to use the terminology again, again, uh, they really wicker man her <laughs> in the sense of, you know, you, you're really, I mean, she she's getting out. She is going by the apartment with her brother. Her brother is, I think, very wisely treating it like it's this escalating domestic problem that mm -hmm. could turn violent and does turn violent, um, you know, a little bit and that, you know, this personality is endangering his sister like it's a very rational story that they're telling underneath his mounting madness you know which kind of you know brings us to the notion the candy man the character of the candy man has become like this true cinematic legend you know born through the reality of of the silver screen um and by being conjured over and over again but this version of the candy man's legend is brought out by the deaths of black men not just mm -hmm. one past murder uh, is brought back to haunt us, which is really, again, the, the concentration of the first film is about one guy. And yeah. this is about a lot. Um, mm -hmm. 
because after this is when we start to see Anthony compulsively painting these really gruesome and grotesque portraits of the past Candyman. Yeah. Um, kind of become his focal point and fixation around the legend. And this is the use of visual art again, um, which is very, very consistent. You know, we've got graffiti, we've got, you know, the, the work with the puppets, we've got Anthony's physical paintings, and then we have same medium, very different way of going about painting um, as we kind of like hit these, these portraits. And it creates this kind of like hive. Um, how did you feel about seeing, you know, again, it's it's like a prism, like one Candyman being split like this. Did you think that that really enhanced the folkloric nature of it or the slasher nature of it? Like, I, it I think it really enhanced the folk folklore of it all because like really, if you're thinking about like, oh, Candyman wasn't just one guy. Candyman was like a torch that was passed on. The worst torch. That is the worst yeah. leg of the Olympic. Oh yeah, life. no, I'm not saying it's a good torch. I'm not saying it's like, <laughs> like you know, but like, but it, but it's like, it's not a, it's not a, um, a voluntarily taken torch. Yeah, it's no. a forced torch. It is. I love that. It's a forced torch. Ooh. And I mean, it, it's. It, I mean, and the symbolism behind it is like you know, it's forced on a certain people. Yeah. You know, like by yeah. like oh, by yeah. white men of power, and like oh, yeah. each each. You can say that the Oscar nods just came out the other day. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to get into that. No, That's we will another conversation. Um, we we know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, like it's it's force. It's not something like anybody reaches their hand out. Is like, yeah, I want to take this on. No. And it's, Anthony's madness is really born of realizing how deep this generational trauma goes. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. so like watching, like seeing that's not just one man, that it's just like kept going. Yeah. It's, it's relentless. It's formed. And it shows you it's not going to end with him. Yeah. Oh, it's formed, forgotten, reformed over and over and over again. And again, it's all those pieces that we talked about before. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's the bees, sometimes it's the hook. The candy is the new element, you know, and, and with, um, you know, they, they do bring up the first death was the black painter, Daniel Robitaille, yeah. who of course was played by Tony Todd, who we all love. Um, and he is why we say Candyman in the mirror. Let's be real. Um, that's not true. Now we have two reasons to say Candyman in the mirror. But, <laughs> um, so, I want to talk, this is going to be sound so silly, but I really want to talk about this scene. The bullies in the bathroom. Can we, can we take a minute to talk about the bullies in the bathroom? Okay. About yeah. those girls. Yeah. Let's talk about those yes. girls. Mm -hmm. What do you think about this scene? This is a very interesting scene to me. That, okay. So like, this is what brought it very mainstream. Like what made Candyman feel very mainstream for me. This was the second trailer I want to say. Like this, yeah. Was, yeah. Like, this was Candyman is as common as fucking Bloody Mary. Yeah. Nobody oh, like God. it's it's there's no fear behind it anymore. It's a silly little thing that like girls, white girls do at sleepovers. It's it means nothing. I I love that it's like the Euphoria teens. <laughs> yeah. Doing it too. It's the Euphoria teens complete with snarky vaping lesbian. And <laughs> the girl who leaves before they can say it the final time is the only other woman of color. <laughs> yep. Because because what did I say? Because y'all know when to run. I yeah, <laughs> don't hit <hang> around. <laughs> no, that ain't a bad thing. Um, but it had actually, like, I remember it from the trailer because we get Trina uh, is the girl who enters, uh, you know, interrupts this classic gaggle of euphoria teens. Um, and it isn't until that she starts getting bullied by them that the Candyman actually shows up. And... We get this other huge kill in this movie. This really just grotesque. Let's bleed out a couple of teens. Oh my god! And a beautiful mirror shot, which like yes, um, but yeah, like it's an interesting little moment of vengeance in this very casual setting that we do not return to. 
you know, this is the only time that we are in, in this high school. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. Like, what are your thoughts on the addition of this scene? Do you feel like it's just there for like trailer fodder or do you feel like this was something that you really wanted to see in this movie? No, I like, I really do feel like it, it's there to point out like how mainstream this legend has become. To me, it's as random as when Helen goes into the bathroom to take pictures of the fucking toilets. Oh my God. In the that's first right. one. You know what? Touche. I don't know why it had not occurred to me that that was odd. I think it is because, and maybe this is a white lady thing. I too have taken photos of interesting toilets. <laughs> in my defense, in my defense, I, I will break to tell this incredibly dumb story. Please do. Um, Yes. When I was growing up, if we wanted to go to the movie theater, you had to drive like 45 minutes out. And very famously, there was a pizza place that like with high altitude cooking, getting a good pizza crust was very difficult at the time. Um, So we would go to this pizza place. And if they were full up, they used to not take reservations because it was like the best pizza on the mountain. Um, if they were full up, you had to go to Pizza Hut across the street. And Pizza Hut is still some quality stuff. It's Pizza Hut, um, yeah. Yeah, but you know, there just wasn't a time when my server wasn't high out of his mind. <laughs> wasn't wasn't a teenager who was very big. Um, but this Pizza Hut had a very famous women's bathroom because it was two toilets, no divider next to each other. And like the I'm sink- sorry. Yeah, it's one room. Two, two toilets next to each other and a sink. And so, yeah, I just, it's just two toilets next to each other. So I took several photos of that over the years to prove that it was real because that Pizza Hut is no longer there. And so <laughs> I too have been the dumb white lady who has taken pictures of toilets in public. Um, so yes, that's culture. <laughs> yeah, no, I, but like, I, like, so, like, one, it's a tie-in to the original because, like, you know, white girls in the bathroom. And then, like, which we do more than once in this film, by the way. Uh, that is true. We do love a white girl in a bathroom in this film. Do you love a white girl in the bathroom? No, I'm going to rewatch it again just for that. <laughs> again, now that I know it's my culture, I have to. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> Sorry, you were saying. <laughs> Um, oh my god, what was I saying? No, um, so like we we bring back the bathroom aspect of it, so it's not that random. And like I don't remember where I was going with this point. Honestly, I see exactly what you mean because I think that you hit the nail on the head with the notion that this it, it does bring it into the mainstream. It doesn't need to be more than than this moment because we already know that it's out. That's know? what it was. That's what it was. That's what that, that's where I was going with it was like in the original Candyman like yes we had the academic study of Candyman and what the le- the the legend is and blah 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 blah. Yeah. But in the original the actual like the lore the 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 people who would be summoning Candyman or whatever who actually really did believe in him stayed within the community. Yeah. It's very, it's very vampiric Peter Pan in that way where it's it's very isolated. Yeah. And very insular. But and now it, this like this scene is showing you how it has broken out of the community. Yeah. Like it is not just a story it is not like a story that's just told amongst black people to like stay in line or watch out for the white man or whatever whatever it's not like um a la urana or you know any of the other ones like no it's not a it's not a warning it's a weapon yeah it's it's literally like it's literally turned into a fun little silly game yeah, in Tide Pod culture, which you know is something that I love exactly. to bitch about with horror. Um, exactly. You know. <laughs> but what, and what these kids don't realize is that, like, a lot of these fun, silly games, uh, they're not don't really fun, silly games. 
It's it's so simple. Why would you do this? And the of course the answer is because they're too cool to think that anything could ever hurt them. Slash, you know, it's supernatural. So why would it be real? And certainly, why would it be in our high school bathroom? I mean, these are the same girls that would fuck with a Ouija board and expect nothing to happen. So like, touche. Yeah, <laughs> like, I understand, but. I'm just, I'm glad that they gave it to us in an aspect of showing how mainstream it became, but also giving us, like, it wasn't just a slasher context. It was, there was a reason he was there to go after them because he didn't have to. He doesn't have no. to show up every time he's summoned. Yeah. You know? he doesn't it have to it shows away. that he's an intelligent entity too. Like, he doesn't have to show up every time he's summoned. No, he shows up when there's a reason. Uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> Well, and kind of like with that reasoning in mind, you know, after the, the bathroom scene, of course, we get to see Anthony just really, really losing his nonsense, which uh, leads to we finally get the big reveal of Vanessa Williams, not that one, uh, <laughs> the other one. <laughs> I always feel so bad for actors who have names like that because, like, this Vanessa Williams is very good and should be remembered as Vanessa Williams in The Candyman. And I'm glad that she was given this spot. But boy, howdy, when you see it on, like, the big screen and you see the yeah. name, you're like, uh-oh. You know and who I you're expecting that. and you're like, wait a second. Yes, I hate that for her. I hate that my my brain has trained me to do that and I'm going to <laughs> retrain it to be the other way around. <laughs> because I like this Vanessa Williams work and we'll watch it more often than the other Vanessa Williams's work. Um <laughs> Uh, so finally, we get the big reveal of Vanessa Williams of it all. And Anthony is the baby from the first film. Mm -hmm. And after that fire, the community vowed to never say the name Candyman again. Yeah. What do you think about the context of this? You know, like, especially in context of the first film, as now this is kind of like a built on previous generation tale in the folklore. Well, I mean, in the first film, like... We thought we got him. Yeah. We thought we thought we put him like out of this realm or whatever. Like we have sealed him away. Do yeah. not speak his name. Do not bring him back here. Yeah. Do not summon him back here. Like, it's very we put him in a Pandora's box. Exactly. Yeah. Like do you see what he just did again? <laughs> For like <laughs> the tenth time, again. Tony Todd again. In this place, <laughs> like, like, and this time we almost lost a baby, and we're all gonna get blamed for this white woman, like losing her mind here. Shut it down. We're not talking about it ever again, like. And obviously, like somebody blabbed. Obviously, yeah. That's where we get our beautiful, beautiful William, who again, I, I, I get. I have to love William because I do love Christopher Lee's Lord Summer's Isle. I love the guy who's kind of just like, nah, I'm just going to go completely, absolutely in on this, whether or not it's good for anyone else. Because I 150% believe that if we put this guy in a wicker man, that we will have apples next year. <laughs> like, and I say that because then here we have, William on the other side of that. The other thing that I I like kind of love about the character of William, and you know, we'll get to this, or you know what, fuck it, we're getting to it now. Um, the way that he treats Brianna at the laundromat mm -hmm. is so like it's such an interesting way because this is the moment where it's not just about Candyman anymore. William is willing to commit violence against his own community to make a point. Mm -hmm. And that point is gruesome because after he kidnaps Brianna and takes her to the chapel in Cabrini Green, Anthony is, he is like, I'm making like guttural inappropriate microphone noises that I will have to listen to later. Sorry, future me. Um, because it is, he is in a fugue state. He is covered in boils and he is about to get his hand chopped off and a raw hook shoved in the stump. Like this is grotesque. And, and so again, how do you feel about this kind of community violence 
that William is willing to commit in order to make this weapon, for lack of a better way of putting it. I think, I think sometimes people use evil for the greater good. And he sees Candyman as something that is going to help the community overall. Because throughout the film, you see how Black people were still being treated by the police. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Candyman is vengeance. I really love this notion of, of how you've phrased this, because I think that you've hit a folkloric nail on the head because it is a phrase that we will hear over and over again in many of the British-based films that have come out of the original folk horror kind of setting, which is the greater good. It's for the greater good. For anybody yeah. who's ever seen the movie Hot Fuzz, that's literally their chant. It's, it's just Timothy Dalton and a bunch of people in robes going, the greater good. <laughs> <laughs> like, And I think that you provide a really interesting POV with this because I think the acts of violence are so grotesque that it is hard to see that that's the greater good. But this is, of course, the violence that we have been seeing throughout the film. Yeah. And so very much so in that Lord Summer's Isle way, it's very match for match. And, oh, woof. It is, yeah. it is a lot, you know, uh, uh, here at the end. But in this scene, you're also seeing that, like, this was his intention the entire time. From the moment he set eyes, this was his intention. He knew. Yeah. He knew, like, I can get this dude to be my victim. What do you call him? Um, oh. <laughs> uh, what is the word? What's the word? Oh my God, Melinda, what's the word? He's going to be your uh, conduit. Conduit. He's going to be the conduit for, yes. for the new Candyman. He's going to come. He's going to bring the community back. He's going to ungentrify the community, which I don't know how you do that, but okay. Scare all the white people out. Yeah, I guess. But like, <laughs> I mean, like, look how well that happened. Like, they took it back anyway. Here we go. We're in the cycle again. But he is looking at Candyman as Candyman is our savior. Instead of Candyman is something we need to fear like we did previously. I love this. And actually, I... I have just thought of this question and now I, I have a burning desire to, to ask you. <laughs> so, you know, here we have William who is the witness of a violent death mm -hmm. of a candy man. Mm -hmm. We have Anthony who as a child bore witness to the violent machinations of another candy man. Mm -hmm. Do you think that William maybe puts Anthony down this path? So that way Anthony is not the one to take on the mantle. Yeah, <laughs> I hadn't thought of it before, but it's so, they're so similar when we do put them right next to each other. Like yeah. This. Okay, I'm going to say no, and here's why. Please expound. I would love it. I, okay, and I'm 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 thinking as I'm talking, so bear with me. I think that William was never destined to be Candyman. William was destined to make sure that Candyman always came back. William was destined to somehow make sure that Anthony came back. And I'm and now I'm now I want to rewatch it again and see if there were ties there that I didn't really notice earlier on. It hadn't occurred to me before either and this movie is lousy with Easter eggs if you love but <laughs> but no okay but he was yeah. so William was never destined to be um Candyman and it's because in the original we portray Anthony as the child that was supposed to be born between Helen right and Candyman. Oh yeah. That was like 
that baby was supposed to be their child. That's interesting. So That's like very interesting. Like it was always meant to be passed down to him. It was always meant to go to Anthony. Oh, I love that. And yeah, again, what a way that we're pulling from folklore that really appeared in that film. Like this is kind of, this is why I wanted to talk about this film for so freaking badly because it is so rare to come across a movie that has invented its own folklore in this way. Again, we're talking like this is a real legend. Yeah, I mean, because you, <laughs> you have to go back to the original film for that because you have like, they, yeah. they have the whole restaurant scene in the original film where they're talking about the original story of Candyman yeah. and how he fell in love with a white woman and he paid the price for falling in love with a white woman and getting her pregnant, mm -hmm. which is which is a story old as the, as the fucking US at this Ooh. point. Um, and what ended up happening to him? He got lynched and he came back for vengeance. This like it's ha it happened again, and it's interesting that you that you bring up in context of like when we're talking about interracial relationships as well because actually I can't remember what the interview was that I read at one point. I think it was Virginia Madsen who brought up that Rose actually did want to do a sequel very soon afterwards, and they wanted to concentrate on like what would have been like a back in time like past you know, Candyman and, you know, Helen Lyle's, you know, ancestor who definitely totally isn't, but of course is played by <laughs> Virginia Madsen again, um, you know, the girl who he falls in love with. And they wanted to do that origin story, but the studios literally said they don't know how the interracial relationship would go off on screen. Oh, at that point. Yeah. That being said, we still got two more, you know, three more yeah. Candyman. Yeah. We still because yeah this is five <laughs> this is five <laughs> in in the Candyman uh registry so to speak but actually, no so yes anthony was always destined i to love that Candyman. i think that you are entirely 100 right and if anybody disagrees talk about it in the comments because that's your space to do it because it's my podcast and not yours um yours being the universal you i'm very happy that you're on leah <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you know, I mentioned some of the, the Easter eggs of this film. Do you have a favorite? Hmm. If the answer is no, I can also tell you some of them because I looked them up. Hmm. Okay. You can tell me because now I'm like trying to go back and forth between both movies. I remember your favorite because I actually put it down on my list. Um, <laughs> and so if you want, I can say oh, this. Good. I see this yeah. is why I have you because like, I say things and then I don't remember what I say like five minutes later. Well, so I think you're very smart. So I do remember. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember you were the first one who told me that Anthony McCoy's name is said five times in the film. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. Once by the gallerist, the art critic, the news reporter, and then finally by Brianna at the end. Um, and so I remember you telling me that me being like, what? And yet another reason to, to rewatch this film in case you didn't know, uh, you can count them off. Uh, one of my personal favorites is William is reading Weave World, which is another Clive Barker book when she enters the laundromat. Um, that book is about like a magical world hidden inside of a tapestry. And like these two individuals kind of get caught up in this kind of world of people both trying to save and destroy like this kind of like magical fugue area. And so, for me, that was like a nice nod to the fact that Candyman wasn't just going to be Anthony's story. It was also going to be Brianna's because I love her. Oh, <laughs> I, didn't even, I didn't even know that one. I think that knowing what Weave World is about is very helpful because if not, then he's just reading another Clive Barker book. Yeah, like I was just like, oh, okay. Yeah, I think it could have easily been books, one of the books of blood and like everyone would have been like, ah. Oh but like it's just like special in my heart that it's weep world because i love clive barker so much um also in those scenes Candyman is like reflected in the laundromat windows like sporadically which is yeah really cool. well like he's also reflected in the um the bath uh, the apartment bathroom for the reporter yeah good call good call good call they do a great job of sneaking in these like almost ghostly shots mm -hmm. that they're not creature they're not ghosts they're not vampiric there's something 
else and they're so interesting but it's just like it's when anthony catches like glimpses of his reflection yeah and he sees Candyman instead. oh for sure well and i think that that kind of brings us all to the the finale (laughs) the the final kind of like moments of this of this (sighs) film because of course william succeeds in putting anthony inside of a winter coat wicker man um, for lack of a better way of putting it. <laughs> we don't laugh, it's just really upsetting. Um, but and, and of course, you know, the, the cops have been called him to to you know walk out and be shot, which he is. Mm-hmm. But the scene I think that is probably one of the most like skin crawly in the whole film is the intimidation scene in the squad car. So we have this scene of this woman sitting in the back of the cop car. It's not big. It's not flashy. It's very subtle, um, but very razor sharp at -hmm. the same time. Mm -hmm. With Just how the cop's language that he uses of, you know, well, what are you going to tell them? Well, if you choose to tell them this way, you know, this could happen or that could happen. And then it becomes this incredible act of defiant vengeance almost as quickly as it makes your skin crawl. Yeah. Like it is, I I still get chills just thinking about it. What was it like seeing this scene in theaters? Well, I mean like watching her come to the realization of what William was doing and why, and why Candyman was needed. It takes that long for her to come to that realization because because it doesn't happen to like it hadn't happened to her. She hadn't experienced it. That is a very interesting way of looking at this in an incredibly insightful way. Of well, yeah. So like she's experiencing it yeah. in the cop car. And so it is clicking for her in that moment. Yeah. Like it is like, it's all finally coming together. It's very much an, Oh shit. And it's not just a, instinctual like i need to be saved in this moment moment it is a no this is again for the betterment of all of us we need i love that i love that so much because you know as i've mentioned at the beginning of this and have been dropping it throughout you know one of my favorite lines from the original is be my victim Mm -hmm. um, which she refuses to be yeah in this moment And then that's when it's kind of replaced with this way better mantra of tell everyone. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, like invoke, uh, invoke. It's basically invoke me. I fucking dare you do it. It's so direct. It's not even, It's, it's not even a dare anymore. It's call on me. Yeah. Tell everyone, this is my personal number for fuck you up. Like, yeah, let's like, do call it. on me. If you're in a situation, it's, it's, it is like, it is that, like, you're yeah. in trouble, call on me. Yeah. It really does. He becomes this avenging angel mm-hmm. of horror in a way that the original, and again, I love that they bring Tony Todd back. It was, I think, so important to have him saying some of these lines. Um, and that's brilliant filmmaking. Cause I know there was also a rumor for a while that he wasn't going to be involved in the new one. And how did you feel about that? Actually, when you first heard about that as a, as a big fan. That he was, that he was going to be in it. That he might not be in it. I never believed that he wasn't going to be in it. You know what? Touche. <laughs> like, it's not like he's gone. And like, it's something that's very big part of his career, you know, yeah. like, I assumed that he'd play like a college professor or something like that. Like I didn't think that he'd be putting on the coat again. And so to see him in the coat again, saying words. This is such a cult movie though, where like, you've got to like, I think people understands like you still have to give, if you're, if you're taking on a cult movie, you still have to give something to the cult fans. You just defined folk horror. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> oh, did Jordan Peele put us all in a wicker man? Wow. <laughs> um, 
I'm sorry. I, this is why I'm so stoked that you love this genre now, because I think that I'm slowly converting you to see things like me, but I love that you're bringing your perspective of knowing like, no, 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 girl, you know, modern movies and you know, modern movies fucking well. And I have my fucking wicker glasses on it all. <laughs> <laughs> so this is really, really fun. Thank you. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, you know, usually now speaking of the wicker stuff, you know, usually now I would say, you know, oh, does this film qualify as a folk horror film? Would you put it inside of a wicker man as a sacrifice to the greater movie gods? But I think that we can both agree that this belongs in the fire. At yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. yes, yes. <laughs> this does not need to go to England in order to, to live up to how monumental this, this film is. Not it's at really, all. No. Really, peak folk horror revival. Well, Leah, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. I know that dissecting this film is not always easy. And so I appreciate you not only coming on, but being so enthusiastic about being like, I want to talk about this movie. Like, thank you. <laughs> I would have been so mad if you had brought anybody else on to talk about this movie. All right. Well, to the other two people who asked about this movie. <laughs> Well, Leah, where can people find you on social media? <laughs> uh, you can find me at What's Leah Making on Instagram. Um, and you can find me at, at Leah Johns on TikTok. Yeah. Well, as, as one Candyman fan to another, thank you once again for coming on. I hope that you have all enjoyed our, our own personal revival of Folksy this month. And remember, y'all, stay back. <laughs>